ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. This week's podcast, the first of 2019, is the last live interview I recorded for the fall series, We Shall Refashion Life on Earth, Youth in Eurasia and Beyond in the University of Pittsburgh Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. I hope you enjoy it. At the turn of the 21st century, a tide of nonviolent youth movements swept across Eastern Europe, demanding political change in repressive political regimes in Serbia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Georgia, and Ukraine that emerged since the collapse of communism. This live interview with Elena Nikolayenko, will discuss these youth movements and their ability to mobilize citizens against the authoritarian government on the eve of national elections. Elena Nikolayenko is an associate professor and associate chair of undergraduate studies in the Department of Political Science at Fordham University. Her research interests include comparative democratization, social movements, political behavior, women's activism, and youth, with a regional focus on Eastern Europe. She's the author of Youth Movements and Elections in Eastern Europe, published by Cambridge University Press. Here is Elena Nikolayenko. I thought I'd start our discussion by just having you, and I always like to do this because I'm interested in how people come up with their topics and, and what inspires them. So I thought we'd start by just having you talk about how did you come to the topic of youth movements in Eastern Europe? First of all, uh, thank you very much for inviting me to come here to UPIT. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be in Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm originally from Eastern Ukraine, and I just want to mention that uh, Pittsburgh uh, it has a sister city uh, of Donetsk, um, I call mining region, uh, and um, you know the, the, there are a lot of ties, uh, right. social ties, um, between the two uh, countries. Um, and uh, as far as my research interest in youth is concerned, uh, well, um, youth is widely seen as an agent of social change. Uh, and uh, in Soviet Ukraine, uh, the student uh, hunger strike of 1990 played um, a vital role in exposing the cracks in the, uh, in the communist regime. Uh, but then, with the collapse of communism, uh, a lot of young people became disengaged from politics in the 1990s. And uh, uh, the rise of uh, nonviolent youth movements in uh, the 2000s uh, uh, surprised many local observers. Uh, and uh, it, I think it also uh, 
provides a, a fascinating example for studying uh, um, a uh, case uh, of uh, youth uh, revolt against the status quo. Uh, so as a postdoctoral student, uh, a postdoctoral fellow at uh, Stanford, uh, I was uh, really fascinated by, by what has uh, recently happened across the region, and uh, I decided to um, write a book about it. So it, it, you, your study, it looks at youth movements in Serbia, Belarus, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Ukraine, which is a very wide scope. So talk a bit about the, the context of these countries and the, in the youth movements um, that are working in, and, and why did you choose these countries as opposed to, say, you know, say Russia, for example, which has a, not an oppositional youth movement in the 2000s, but a pro-regime movement? Uh, well, uh, all these countries uh, share a great deal of similarities. Uh, they combine uh, a set of democratic authoritarian features. On the one hand, elections were held uh, throughout the post-Soviet region and in Serbia. But on the other hand, incumbents manipulated electoral rules and violated uh, democratic procedures to the extent that the turnover of, uh, turnover of power was hardly possible. So uh, young people who grew up uh, in this, uh, during this period uh, saw a tremendous uh, gap between the rhetoric that the ruling elite employed to legitimize its rule and uh, the situation on the ground. Um, and uh, that's why I think uh, um, you know, it provided uh, um, stimulus uh, for youth mobilization against the regime in the 2000s. But, you know, it's interesting because in these five countries, you have a mixture of successes and a mixture of failures. So, for example, successes would be Serbia, Georgia, and Ukraine, and Belarus and Azerbaijan are failures, one could say. So what about the youth movements in, say, the success countries that, that allowed them to be successful? Well, I selected both cases of success and failure, and... Um, in the book, I define uh, success in terms of the level of mass mobilization um, against the regime, uh, electoral participation, and also uh, participation in post-election protests. Uh, so here, I don't by success, I don't mean um, uh, really substantial social change in the optimus of mass mobilization. Uh, but still, nonetheless, uh, certainly, you know, uh, in um, Serbia, uh, Georgia, and Ukraine, we have seen uh, some um, sort of political liberalization in the optimus of uh, the this uh, uh, post-election protest. Uh, and um, um, w uh, there were several... Um, factors that explain why youth mobilized at a higher level uh, in these uh, cases uh, of success. Uh, and uh, in the book, I argue that tactical choices made by social movements uh, and uh, the ruling elite explain in part why uh, some youth movements were more successful than others. Of course, it's very easy to uh, blame um, the structural factors, the level of state repression, or the state of the local economy um, on um, 
the uh, low level mobilization against the regime in some cases. Uh, but still, uh, even when the odds uh, seem to be against uh, the political opposition, uh, there is some room for political maneuvering and uh, the opposition still has an opportunity to make uh, certain tactical choices that might either uh, boost uh, the level of opposition to the regime or you know uh, lead to the, the uh, to the um, um, uh, um, to the decline of um, a mass uh, movement against against the government now before getting into the the particulars of these tactical choices um you know you just mentioned a few minutes ago about how after the collapse of communism young people are mostly disengaged from politics mm -hmm. so and but in the 2000s you do see this development of a variety of different youth movements of all stripes in, in throughout the region. So what accounts for this re-engagement of young people in politics in the 2000s? I believe that uh, uh, a new generation of citizens grew up in the 1990s. Um, and uh, you know they were born in the late 1980s so when the soviet union fell apart uh, uh, they went uh, to schools uh, uh, and uh, they began um, to be socialized in the political environment uh, free from the communist ideology uh, they became uh, exposed uh, to Western ideas uh, and the forces of globalization. So uh, they did not want uh, to accept um, and put up with the escalation in authoritarian practices that began to occur in the 2000s. Um, uh, so uh, they, uh, a small minority of them, not all of them, of course, but a small minority of them uh, decided to get organized um, and uh, uh, get involved in the contentious politics. So would you say that the, the, the need to engage was mostly on the kind of ideological front? Were there any, say, social economic factors of the period that made youth more disgruntled? Like, for example, we can speak of, you know, if we look at uh, in another comparative context of, say, the Arab Spring, or even now in Western Europe and the United States, more young people are becoming politically active. A lot of it is generated by, you know, economic concerns, concerns about the future, their livelihoods. Were there any similar conditions in post-communist states that allowed for young people to be inspired to get engaged in politics? Well, to some extent, yes. Uh, I mean, certainly in Serbia, uh, the hyperinflation in the 1990s uh, caused uh, a steep decline in the quality of living standards. Uh, there was high unemployment, uh, and uh, the country was um, isolated from the rest of the world. Uh, and and um, uh, so a, a lot of people were unemployed uh, and uh, uh, they held economic grievances against the government. Uh, but at the same time, in Ukraine, since uh, the early 2000s, so the country experienced a streak of positive economic growth uh, that um, gave rise to the emergence of the middle class. Uh, and um, you wouldn't expect uh, them to have um, economic grievances against the government because it did. Econ uh, economic situation was getting better, uh, but uh, they uh, but they still uh, felt um, 
the imperative to protest. And in part, it, it, it was driven not just by concerns about the domestic situation in the country, but also uh, about the foreign policy choices uh, that uh, uh, the two uh, presidential contenders offered at that time. Um, in 2004, you know, the two main candidates uh, uh, for the presidency were Viktor Yanukovych and Viktor Yushchenko, uh, and one of them was seen as a more pro-Western candidate, uh, or more oriented toward the European Union and uh, closer ties with the West. Another one was more pro-Russian. Uh, so uh, the uh, voters uh, uh, were thinking not just about the economic situation in the country or domestic politics, but also about the uh, far-reaching uh, foreign policy implications, uh, you know, when, when they went to the polling stations. Uh, and uh, in part, uh, you know, for some young people, it was also a matter of concern. So, um, so who are these young people? Are they university students? What are their ages? Uh, what is the range? What is their class composition? Are they mostly from cities? Are they from rural areas? Can you give us a description of the type of young person that participates in these youth movements? Uh, in the book, I define youth as um, people under the age of 29. Um, um, and. Um, uh, most of them are uh, university, college age uh, youth. Uh, there were very few high school students who participated in protests uh, in uh, Serbia. Um, uh, but in other countries, uh, I find that it was primarily college age youth uh, in their 20s. Uh, and uh, the leaders of the youth movements uh, uh, primarily came from middle class backgrounds. Um, uh, you know, it required uh, um, a great deal of resourcefulness and knowledge uh, to absorb ideas of not just uh, from inside the country, but also from the outside, uh, and then apply them to the local context. Uh, so all of them were college educated, those whom I interviewed. Uh, uh, but there is a great degree of variation uh, in terms of rank and file members of these youth movements. Uh, in some cases, um, as I mentioned earlier, in uh, uh, Georgia, for example, um, people in the capital city of Belize felt a little bit tired and disappointed with the effectiveness or lack of effectiveness of protests against the government. So a lot of young people, university students, were reluctant to join a youth movement, um, you know, uh, uh, as uh, um, one of the activists said, you know, uh, uh, young people, young women wanted to look like a Gucci girl. <laughs> I don't know. They, they, they wanted to dress up well. You know, they, they, they wanted to enjoy a certain lifestyle, and it was not cool to um, um, run around, uh, you know, with a bucket uh, of paint, uh, <laughs> you know, or distribute uh, stickers. Uh, so they had to go into the provinces, into the villages, where um, the local population what was totally neglected by the government and rural youth was more hungry for change, was more willing to get involved in the protests, uh, to get their voice heard. Um, 
yeah. And and, and uh, of course, you know, also in Serbia, uh, there are only four major, uh, four universities <laughs> in uh, Belgrade, uh, Novi Sad, uh, um, Kragujevac, uh, um, um, and Nish. Uh, so uh, they wanted to reach youth uh, in smaller towns and cities. Uh, so they and, and they and they realized that it's not enough to focus just on the university population. So so they went beyond that, uh, and they they, they did uh, try to recruit some youngsters who attended high schools or vocational schools, uh, or were just unemployed. Now, what are these youth movements? Talk about are they organizations? Where does their uh, funding come from? What's the role of, of international, you know, granting agencies and NGOs and, and form and develop in these youth movements development in these countries? Um, well, uh, the first uh, youth movement uh, that I study in the book uh, is the Serbian youth movement Otpor, which literally means resistance. Uh, and it was set up by a group of university students at the University of Belgrade uh, without any sort of, um, of assistance uh, from foreign governments. Uh, and uh, it began to receive funding only later, uh, uh, on the eve of the 2000 federal elections. So. Uh, a lot of activists whom I interviewed uh, were really upset when uh, you know they were seen or portrayed in the media as uh, pawns of the West, uh, uh, you know, foreign mercenaries, uh, and uh, in fact, uh, you know they uh, did uh, display a great deal of uh, creativity and innovation in developing tactics uh, uh, that. Uh, uh, challenge the, the current regime. Um, of course, in some countries, you know, they did apply for small grants uh, to try and get off the ground, uh, get out vote campaign, uh, and the level of uh, foreign support for these youth movements varied. Uh, but, but in the book, I, I try uh, to de-emphasize uh, the absolute uh, amount of money that these youth movements received or did not receive, and instead uh, try to place uh, more emphasis on uh, uh, how they use these resources, uh, uh, because uh, I'm trying to make an argument that it's not just about the amount of money that the youth movement has, but about the uh, creativity uh, and the choices that they make, uh, uh, how to spend these resources, where to invest them. In, in what ways did they do that? Like what, what kind of tactics did they use? What types of modes of resistance did they, did they employ against these various regimes? Uh, well, uh, 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 the Serbian youth movement at Por was successful in um, distinguishing itself from the opposition political parties and youth wins uh, of other parties uh, uh, by creating a culture of resistance. Uh, they uh, realized that uh, uh, just going to, uh, just inviting young people to go to a rally and standing there for an hour or so and listening to some um, senior politicians giving a speech would not. Um, uh, be appealing to many youngsters. Uh, so instead, uh, they suggested that uh, resistance uh, was not something that you would do on a weekend for an hour or two. Resistance is a lifestyle. So they uh, mixed uh, 
nonviolent resistance with some marketing techniques uh, and try to create a cultural resistance uh, um, uh, so that uh, it would be trendy to spray paint a graffiti um, uh, against the government uh, or um, um, participate in a street performance um, in the capital city of Belgrade. Uh, they also, for example, uh, produced a TV spot uh, in which uh, uh, they capitalized on the resources that were available to them. Uh, they, uh, uh, it's very uh, common uh, to see uh, TV spots in which um, uh, detergent uh, is um, advertised where, uh, you know, in, in that particular TV spot, uh, uh, they showed how a woman um, puts a t-shirt uh, in a laundry machine and then uh, she pushes a button with the image of the clenched fist uh, on it. Uh, and once uh, the t-shirt is washed, it's shown impeccably clean without the image of Milosevic on it. Uh, at the beginning of the TV spot, they show an image of the uh, of Milosevic on the t-shirt. Then once the shirt is washed, uh, you know, he's gone. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, they conclude this TV spot uh, with, uh, with an image of a woman showing like a clenched fist like this, you know, suggesting that it doesn't make, uh, it doesn't take a lot of effort. We can do it. We can uh, 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 get him out of the office. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, so this is just an example of how, you know, they didn't uh, require a significant amount of money right. to produce such a TV spot. Uh, but it really resonated with the locals. And in contrast, for example, you know, uh, in Belarus, um, uh, the Belarusian youth activists allegedly received a small amount of money to print stickers for the uh, campaign. Uh, but, uh, you know, they were so colorful uh, uh, that and they looked kind of glossy and expensive uh, that it raised a lot of questions among locals of where the money came from. Uh, and it kind of uh, um, tainted the image of the right. youth movement uh, uh, because uh, uh, the government um, was uh, quite uh, effective in emphasizing the notion that the uh, this movement was just um, a part of a CIA plot <laughs> right. or like some uh, uh, kind of um, uh, Western uh, um, a mercenary uh, that uh, uh, tries to destabilize the situation in the country. Can you can you talk a bit more about the types of NGOs, um, the foreign funders, or, or who are giving grants to various youth organizations? What are the what are they? What are their mission? And do they continue to operate in some of these countries? Um, well, yes, and uh, because. Um, a peak of youth mobilization happened during the election year. Um, they tried to establish uh, some ties um, uh, with the, the NGOs that uh, also worked upon election-related issues. Uh, and um, in each of these countries, uh, there was an effort uh, to organize a parallel vote count and also uh, to, uh, you know, in the aftermath of the election or uh, during the election. And then prior to the election, they also try to um, hold um, get out to vote campaigns. 
Uh, so in uh, Serbia, for example, uh, there was a, a get out vote campaign that uh, drew heavily upon the experience of the United States or, you know, the Slovaks uh, using uh, the rock concerts as a venue for uh, voter mobilization. Uh, so uh, Otpor did not do it alone. Uh, and they partnered with some professionals uh, who were uh, who had expertise in how to organize rock concerts, and and those who also knew quite a lot um, about uh, voter mobilization, you know, public opinion, um, uh, and uh, jointly they held uh, those events, uh, and in fact uh, they were convinced by their partners not to. Uh, disclose uh, this alliance between the youth movement and the NGOs uh, so that uh, f at least for some time uh, a few rock concerts uh, could be held uh, uh, without uh, an immediate backlash from the government. Uh, in, uh, in Georgia, uh, the NGO uh, Liberty Institute played a vital role in providing a space for the growth of the youth movement uh, because some of the leaders of the Liberty Institute uh, were earlier involved uh, in um, protests um, against the communist regime in the late 1980s and they felt uh, that uh, they haven't accomplished at that time what they aspired for they didn't get the free and uh, you know prosperous democratic georgia that they wished they could have uh, so they 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 wanted to um, nurture another generation of civic activists uh, and they for example provided the uh, physical space uh, uh, inside the NGO uh, uh, so that the youth activists could hold meetings there and and um, maybe also provided them with some kind of advice or tips uh, on how to organize their activities uh, and um, yeah so, so this so this are just some of the examples uh, but again you know in all of this case it's it's very critical for the youth movements to strike a delicate balance between accepting uh, some advice of some form of assistance from uh, non-governmental organizations or opposition political parties and at the same time maintaining its own voice and uh, displaying um, a great deal of creativity so that they could reach uh, the young demographics. So, uh, because no matter how committed an uh, older cohort of activists might be to democratic to the democratic cause, you know they still um, uh, grow up during a different historic period, and uh, you know they might not fully grasp, uh, you know, the youth culture. Now, one of the thing, the interesting features that you find across all of these kind of explosions in youth activity and youth movements are around elections. Mm -hmm. Now, and it's interesting because these are also elections in non-democratic states. So what, why do elections provide this opportunity in these post-communist states for political change, youth movements to exert themselves? 
Well, elections have become a near ubiquitous phenomenon. And even in autocracies, incumbents um, uh, feel the need uh, to maintain a facade uh, of democracy, or at least some sort of political competition. So they regularly hold uh, uh, elections. And uh, a lot of uh, not just domestic, but international attention uh, uh, is focused on the country uh, when it holds presidential or parliamentary elections. Um, uh, in the past, especially, uh, you know, a lot of uh, donor money was channeled uh, to the countries, to the civil society during the election period, and afterwards, uh, uh, you know, they um, shifted their attention to something else. Uh, so uh, for civic activists, it's a chance uh, to uh, try and uh, press for political change. Um, and of course, you know, for uh, the ruling elite, it is just an instrument uh, uh, for ensuring the legitimacy of the current regime and continuing, you know, the status quo. Would you say that one of the, the kind of ironies of these elections is that you know, in these non-democratic states, elections are supposed to happen, everybody's supposed to play their role, and the election is over and the regime gets over this kind of obligatory facade that they put on. But it's also, it seems to me, the the one of the opportunities, or this is a question, I guess, does the cracks that appear in these electoral processes within the elite, within various political forces in the country, does this allow for an opening where youth can youth movements can step in and fill various vacuums or at least draw attention to grievances or issues that they wouldn't be able to, in other situations, there wouldn't be a, a receptive audience for? Yeah, it certainly provides opportunity for young people to um, articulate their demands. Uh, but at the same time, uh, a lot depends on the old political opposition. Um, and uh, here I can see a contrast, for example, between uh, uh, Belarus and Ukraine. Uh, in Ukraine, Viktor Yushchenko became a single candidate from the opposition. Uh, and even despite the fact that some other politicians, in particular Julia Tymoshenko, had a lot of political ambitions, she agreed to play the second fiddle and uh, you know uh, let him uh, uh, be a single candidate from the opposition, which brought uh, all the different political forces uh, together. Uh, and also, you know, it was a good choice because uh, at least at the time before he was poisoned, he was uh, considered as uh, quite um, attractive candidate for some voters. It was a factor. Uh, uh, and, you know, he was well educated. Uh, he had a relatively clean reputation, in the, um, and not just in Ukraine, but also in the international Western community. Uh, uh, so he managed to garner a lot of support. In contrast, uh, uh, the Belarusian political opposition that also tried to emulate uh, the example of the Ukrainians, uh, 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 the, the Serbs at the time, uh, in 2001, uh, decided to nominate a leader of the trade union as a single candidate from the opposition. And I remember reading one of the articles, um, I think in New York Times or like in Western media, that described um, uh, Hancharek as uh, 
not even remotely charismatic <laughs> yeah, or something you know those lines you know he he, he was just um, quite indistinguishable from uh, uh, the incumbent president uh, uh, Alexander Lukashenko uh, he was not um, uh, radical enough to uh, be willing to lead uh, anti-government protests in the uh, wake of the elections uh, and he was at, he, he was not popular with young people he, he wasn't a and that's why no matter how much uh, maybe uh, Zubra activists tried to mobilize young people uh, they were not able to convince them uh, that uh, you know it, it was worth the fight now one of the things you focus on is the dynamics between these youth movements and the state and what how that relationship and the dynamic between res youth resistance and then the state's reaction including repression shapes the tactics that uh, youth movements take in these moments of of resistance so talk about this dynamic um how what role does repression play for example and how youth movements that as you stress are all mostly are all nonviolent. How do they respond to this the state repression? Um, yeah, of course, in all cases, uh, youth activists uh, had to deal with state repression, uh, but they responded to it in different ways. Uh, in Serbia, for example, the government uh, uh, launched a massive campaign of arrests and in uh, May 2000, where they uh, detained and fingerprinted um, a lot of youth activists. Uh, and uh, in response, uh, Otpor, for example, organized uh, street performances in front of police stations where they brought uh, local youth uh, uh, and gave them a megaphone and, you know, let them tell their story. Uh, and uh, dispel some myths uh, about the origins of what they stood for. Uh, they wanted to point out that uh, these young people were really members of the local communities and really cared about the future of their country, and that's why they joined the movement. Um, uh, but in uh, other countries, uh, um, uh, the youth movement was not as vocal in uh, exposing uh, state repression uh, and uh, developing counteractive measures. Uh, in Azerbaijan, for example, the government uh, uh, bombarded uh, uh, the local population with um, uh, a story about the alleged uh, cooperation of one of the youth activists uh, with the uh, Armenian security services. Uh, um, it was a very common tactic, uh, and to, it, it was employed more or less in all the cases where the government tried to link the youth movement with an external enemy um, and uh, point out that uh, they were just pawns uh, in a geostrategic uh, game. Uh, so, of course, in the case of uh, uh, Azerbaijan, of course, you know, the arch animal for them was Armenia uh, because they had an unresolved territorial dispute. Uh, so they, uh, they, 
just uh, decimated uh, this uh, particular youth movement. Yenye Fikir, uh, you know, he, the leader of the movement, was arrested, and all the other youth movements uh, were portrayed in a rather negative light. Uh, so they could not just uh, recover from this um, barrage of negative news and win the information war. Uh, in Ukraine, when the government tried to label uh, PORA as a terrorist organization and, you know, the security services were uh, sent uh, and found uh, uh, you know, like a bomb in the kitchen or youth activists or whatever, you know, some explosives. It did not really uh, sound plausible uh, to the majority of Ukrainians. Uh, um, and um, uh, the youth movement uh, during the time organized um, an information campaign uh, titled The Lie, uh, trying to expose uh, some um, um, blatant lies uh, in the state-controlled uh, mass media. Um, uh, so uh, there were differences in uh, the extent to which youth movement tried to, you know, counteract uh, state repression uh, or, or smear campaigns in the mass media, and not sit just idly on the sidelines and, you know, but be vocal about it. So what accounts for a youth movement? Like, why are some were some successful, and why did others fail? Well, there were a host of factors um, uh, that explain uh, the successes of the youth movements. In the book, I focus on um, three types of tactics uh, that uh, youth movements need to make. Uh, first of all, uh, youth movements need to make some choices uh, uh, regarding the recruitment of their members, uh, retention. Uh, and uh, in the, uh, some cases, they cast wider net and try to recruit, uh, for example, not just use of the capital city, but also uh, go into the provinces or recruit uh, rural youth, uh, um, uh, try to transcend some linguistic or regional boundaries that existed in the country. Uh, and it helped uh, to boost the movement's strength. Um, also, another choice that the youth movements need to make has to do with the tactics vis-a-vis -vis allies, um, NGO community, and the mass media. Uh, in, uh, in all of these countries, uh, the national TV channels, uh, the main newspapers uh, were under uh, heavy um, state uh, control. Uh, so youth movements had to develop um, ties with local media uh, and uh, to reach a wider audience. Um, and establish and also, you know, draw upon the expertise that already existed in the NGO community. Uh, when they, for example, tried to organize get out to vote campaigns, uh, and in some cases they were successful than in others in the building and cultivating these ties. And in particular, here I want to point out the relationship between the opposition political parties and uh, the youth movements, because. Uh, 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 the youth movements were kind of under attack from both sides. On the one hand, of course, they faced a great deal of um, uh, pressure from uh, the uh, government agencies, from the security services, uh, uh, to stop uh, the engagement uh, in uh, protests. 
but on the other hand, also the opposition political parties also try to exercise control over these nascent youth movements uh, and uh, just um, make them uh, act as a comfortable during the Soviet times, where you know it didn't really have its own voice; it was supposed to just follow uh, the party line. Um, and uh, in some cases, like in Serbia, for example, uh, the youth movement was so large and powerful that it was able to. Uh, act as an independent force, uh, but in some other cases uh, um, there, there appeared to be closer ties between the youth movement and the opposition political party, which had a negative impact on the movement's capacity to mobilize uh, uh, its supporters, uh, uh, because the trust in the opposition political parties across the region is very low. Uh, and all of them, no matter whether to the left or to the right or in the center, have displayed uh, um, lack of creativity and unwillingness uh, to um, um, change. Uh, you know, Issa Gambar, for example, has been the leader of uh, one of the opposition parties in Azerbaijan, Musavat, for for years, <laughs> for decades. Uh, and instead of stepping down, you know, he kind of continued to lead uh, the party um, rather than giving way to a new cohort of youth activists, of party um, activists. And, uh, the, uh, and of course, you know, the third choice, uh, the set of tactics uh, that all these youth movements had to uh, consider was uh, tactics with, uh, with their opponents, uh, how they would respond to the government. Now, five years ago, mm this, around this time, um, there was another revolution, the Euromaidan revolution in Ukraine, and young people played a really important role in this event. Um, how, and looking at the youth movements you describe in your book, how does the Euromaidan youth participation compare to these other youth movements that came before it? Well, of course, a lot of similarities. And in Ukraine, there is um, a cross-generational exchange of expertise. Um, uh, at the time when the Orange Revolution was um, in full swing, um, uh, veterans of the 1990 student hunger strike um, were in dialogue with the poor activists. Uh, and, and later, uh, uh, and many um, people, many activists, for example, whom I interviewed for my project, uh, uh, were also involved in the Euromaidan protests. Volodymyr uh, um, uh, Vitrovich, for example, one of the leaders of uh, Black Para, um, uh, Yerina Esenevich, Olha Sala, um, um, some of them joined, uh, um, you know, uh, all of them joined the. Uh, Euromaidan protests um, and uh, played uh, some leadership roles. Um, so, uh, and at the same time, already another generation of uh, university students grew up uh, because um, by the time, because the 10 years passed, uh, so, you know, those who were students during the Orange Revolution, by the time the Revolution of Dignity was happening, they were already young professionals. Uh, and actually, according to public opinion polls, uh, uh, the core of protesters um, uh, during the Revolution of Dignity in 2013-2014 were the middle-aged, 
uh, people in their 30s and 40s um, uh, and um, you know they, they uh, many of them uh, were previously activists uh, during the orange revolution so there is this kind of continuation uh, of um, um, you know the, the of young people you know those who were young people you know when they grow older they still stay involved um, uh, but what distinguishes the orange revolution from uh, uh, the revolution of dignity from the orange revolution was first of all uh, uh, the level of violence uh, the orange revolution uh, lasted um, in approximately three weeks uh, you know from the uh, late November 2004, when the second round of presidential elections was held, to early December, when the Supreme Court ruled uh, that uh, the vote was invalid and they ordered a rerun of the second round of presidential elections. Uh, in 2013, uh, 2014, uh, the protest campaign lasted three months. Uh, from November 21st uh, to mid-February. Uh, so uh, it required a great amount of resources. Uh, and uh, by that time, uh, a significantly larger number of young people and Ukrainians in general had access to the internet. Uh, so I think uh, technology played a larger role during that time. Um, there were... Um, uh, video, uh, vid um, video cameras on the square, so people could see what was happening uh, when violence broke out. Uh, and a lot of civic activists were also involved in crowdsourcing. I, 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 I think you haven't seen it on such a large scale during the Orange Revolution, where you know, by and large, the, you know, because of the lens of the campaign, they didn't uh, have such a high demand for the resources, and a lot was provided by the opposition political parties at that time. In 2013, nobody expected that the campaign would last three months, and they, uh, and of course, you know, the number of human casualties was uh, much higher. Uh, so. Um, Activists, some uh, activists, for example, were involved uh, in raising funds uh, uh, to find uh, medical equipment, medical supplies, in particular. Uh, like f uh, uh, and uh, you know, they were trying to look for some expertise uh, uh, to uh, maintain uh, the encampment. You know, your focus is mostly on this, the oppositional force forces against the regime. But what about young people who are organized either covertly or overtly by the state that sometimes get, like we saw this during the, the Maidan in Ukraine, uh, you know, kind of pro-state youth fighting with uh, youth oppositionists. Um, what about the more pro-regime side of young people? Russia is an out-of-sample case in my project, uh, but in the concluding chapter, I do discuss and compare the Nasha youth movement and the Barona youth movement that was formed in uh, uh, Russia approximately during the same time period. Uh, I think a lot of Western media has heard uh, about Nasha, uh, but very few know about Abarona. Uh, Barona literally means uh, defense, uh, and um, it was uh, closely modeled on Otpor. Um, 
and try to use a similar set of nonviolent methods uh, to push for political change, and in particular, um, they targeted, uh, like in other countries, the incumbent president uh, as a source of um, the social problems in the country. But they did not uh, um, win a popular support, and very few people, even inside Russia, uh, knew about them at that time in the mid, uh, in the aftermath of the Orange Revolution, uh, when they were formed. Uh, in contrast, you know, the Nazi youth movement uh, really borrowed heavily the tactics. Uh, that have been previously used by the opposition movements in other countries uh, and uh, use them to mobilize uh, uh, young people in favor of the current regime. Uh, Nashi uh, organized a summer camp on the Lake Seliger where they brought youth activists from different parts of the country and taught them <laughs> uh, how to um, uh, organize uh, their work uh, and um, uh, induce compliant activism. Uh, they brought speakers, you know, uh, from uh, the government uh, and, uh, you know, the, the uh, and uh, they also uh, try to forge uh, ties uh, with the pro-government uh, regime-friendly youth organizations in other countries. Uh, Nashi served as a template uh, for the development of a pro-regime youth movement in um, Azerbaijan, uh, where uh, the government decided to set up uh, the youth movement Irreli, which literally means forward. But the implication, of course, was that the youth was moving forward uh, in line with the incumbent president uh, and his uh, policies. Uh, in uh, other countries, um, in Belarus, uh, uh, the president uh, um, uh, just uh, decided to continue uh, with the Soviet era policy of uh, youth uh, cooptation and um, created a youth organization that resembled, uh, in many ways, um, the Soviet era Komsomol. Uh, but uh, they, uh, but. Um, there was not uh, such a um, deliberate effort uh, at that time in the early 2000s to really try and set up um, in, in some, in some, like in Serbia or in uh, uh, in other in some other countries. Uh, they didn't try to create or sponsor a large scale um, right-wing youth organization that would attack uh, uh, the leftist uh, activists. Um, I mean, it, it, it was... Uh, I, I, it was it was became like the 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 spectrum of right wing nationalism became more um, like a more prominent maybe in the uh, uh, during the Euromaidan when they tried really to amplify in the media the presence of the right sector or some right wing groups. Um, but but you don't get you don't get like we saw during the Maidan 
where you have these Tatushki groups, these like groups of street hooligans that are kind of covertly sponsored by, you know, say um, Yanukovych's people, supporters. You don't get, you don't find similar cases in these earlier instances in even in Ukraine in 2004 or Azerbaijan or Belarus. The state isn't, is the state mobilizing youth against the protesting youth? in these examples that you've that you looked at they're, they're trying to some extent uh, um, uh, but uh, again you know in in some cases like in azerbaijan and belarus the the government really decided to invest uh, significant resources in setting up formal like youth movements or youth organizations that would try to counteract uh, uh, the youth movements in opposition to the regime. Uh, but in, in other cases, um, like in Serbia, um, um, there the existed youth wins of the pro-government mm -hmm. political parties, but they didn't play an active role in uh, local politics. Uh, they, they, they were not really influential players. Uh, um, and uh, in uh, the Republic of Georgia, President Eduard Saakashvili, uh, Eduard, sorry, Eduard Shavarnadze, uh, did not really take seriously Kmara at the time. Um, so there was um, hardly any effort on the part of the incumbent government to counteract uh, with the establishment of um, another pro-government uh, youth movement and finally you know since the um 2000s there's been a wave of of these youth movements not just in in former communist states but we have the arab spring here in the united states we have occupy wall street we have youth movements in europe on the left and on the right so how do you place these east european youth movement that movements that you looked at within a larger global context of youth resistance to non-democratic and democratic regimes? Um, well, the youth movement in Egypt, the uh, April 6th movement, uh, um, actually uh, studied quite carefully uh, the experience of Otpor in Serbia. Uh, and uh, there were even uh, a couple of Egyptian activists who traveled uh, to Belgrade uh, and met uh, Sja Popovic, um, uh, uh, picked up uh, some material <laughs> from them uh, and brought it back uh, to uh, to Cairo. Uh, April 6th movement adopted the clenched fist as a symbol of resistance, uh, uh, like uh, Otpor uh, did in uh, the late 1990s. Uh, so uh, they, uh, they, they saw uh, some parallels between the two societies, uh, even despite the fact that they were different in many ways. Uh, in both cases, there was a high level of uh, political violence, and they felt uh, that uh, they could win popular support only if uh, they abide by nonviolent discipline. Uh, and uh, uh, in Egypt, uh, in Cairo at least, you know, they did uh, 
the the youth movement and a lot of protesters, you know, try to be non-violent. Because <laughs> uh, there is another book um, that came out uh, uh, by Neil Kitchen, uh, in which uh, he looks at what was happening outside Cairo, where a lot of protests were actually violent. Uh, they went to the police stations and burned them. <laughs> uh, and his, he argues that it helped um, those who were in the capital city because, you know, it uh, provided some constraints uh, on um, the extent to which uh, the police in the capital city would be willing to deploy violence against them. That was Elena Nikolayenko, an associate professor and associate chair of undergraduate studies in the Department of Political Science at Fordham University. Her research interests include comparative democratization, social movements, political behavior, women's activism, and youth, with the regional focus on Eastern Europe. She's the author of Youth Movements and Elections in Eastern Europe, published by Cambridge University Press. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Today's special is Memphis Soul Stew. We sell so much of this, people wonder what we put in it. We're going to tell you right now. Give me about a half a teacup of bass. Now I need a pound of fat-back drums. Now give me four tablespoons of ballin' Memphis guitars. This gonna taste all right. Now just a little pinch of organ. Give me a half a pint of horn. Place on the burner and bring to a boil. That's it, that's it, that's it right there. Now beat. Well...